met Justin Dangle last November while attending a symposium on journalism and democracy. Soon after we met, I learned that Justin was a serial entrepreneur who founded and led successful companies like Firefly, Ready, and Goji due to his genuine hope of helping people in need. Additionally, Justin is a political wonk who founded Voter.com in 2001 at the ripe old age of 26. During his leadership and tenure, his platform generated over 3.5 million monthly active users and 500,000 newsletter subscribers. Voter.com was a repository for content that helped our citizens educate themselves about local, regional, and national politics. Or to quote Justin directly, Voter.com delivered the kind of information voters needed to make informed decisions about their elected officials. Justin's political and public service background includes both volunteer and work positions with the United States Treasury Department, Senator Ted Kennedy's office, and Senator Joseph Biden's office, respectively. During our chat today, we discussed a wide range of topics that include racism, gun violence, testing criteria in our public schools, defund the police, student debt, and the state of journalism today. We also discussed the overall challenges of the Democratic Party, what they're doing correctly, and what they need to do differently to once again realign themselves with working-class voters. It was my pleasure to have Justin on the show, and his tenure and expertise in politics was both obvious and educational simultaneously. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. There we are, Justin Dangle. I appreciate you joining me on True 30 this morning. Great. Thanks for having me. So as I... Uh, I've probably bored my listeners a couple of times. I was at a a summit, a conference in the desert, in Palm Desert in November, and that's where we met. We actually hung out at a symposium for journalism and democracy where we watched uh, Nick Traiano oversee a group of uh, journalists, including Jessica Yellen and Isaac Saul, which was a really cool and invigorating platform. And that that's kind of how we started talking as I was explaining to you what we're doing at True 30. I didn't realize at the time what an original OG you are in the sense of politics. And much like your success as a serial entrepreneur in the business world, you've had much success in the world of politics as well. You were, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you were the founder and CEO of Voter.com in the year 2000. And and in there, you created the most popular independent political channel on the internet with more than three and a half million monthly users, 500,000 newsletter subscriptions, and you led a team that developed strategic partnerships with Microsoft, NBC, CNN, AFL-CIO, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Democratic and Republican Parties. And your political and public service work includes both volunteer work with the United States Treasury Department, as well as Senator Edward Kennedy's office and Senator Joseph Biden's office at the time. And so I was blown away by that background, specifically what we're doing at True 30. And then you and I to talk about ready jumped on a call and spun into an hour conversation (laughs) of current politics and what was going on. And I was like, Holy shit, this guy genuinely understands what's going on out there. And so I wanted to, you know, as you being a political wonk, I wanted to kind of, you know, move into those discussions today. If that's cool. If you just want to free for a little bit with that, I have some questions I'd like to ask you as uh, someone who spent the last, you know, two and a half decades of your life uh, immersed in. Yeah. And in many ways, most of what I've done in business has been an extension of the, the civic, of my desire to be involved with, uh, with the improving the, the, uh, the, the, the civic, uh, situation in our country. So whether it was voter.com, which was an effort to, uh, try to help navigate the world into, uh, uh, a better online discourse, uh, which right. we, 
Uh, <laughs> not there. Not achieved. We did not achieve. Uh, no. Or Ready, which obviously is a company that's designed to help extend access to care uh, to people that need it the most. Uh, these have been themes in my life, and I continue to be very engaged in politics. You mentioned I started off. I was actually briefly on uh, Senator, then Senator Biden's staff, and. Uh, uh, Senator Kennedy's staff, um, and have done a number of things in politics and, uh, been sometimes involved with the media. I'm a, a Democrat. It's uh, easy for anyone to look up my campaign finance records. I guess I've, for better or worse, become a material contributor to the party over the years. And, um, <laughs> I have some, uh, concerns about the direction of the party. Um, but I continue to prefer what we're up to, uh, to, uh, the, um, uh, to, to what the other side is doing. To speak on that note, in the sense of the Democratic Party, where it's going, I, as we've shared over our conversations, have basically shared the same brain, it sounds like, on the left-center side of Democratic politics. And where do you see the Democratic Party going? We have been in the midst, uh, really since 2013 and 2014, of, uh, I wouldn't call it a civil war, but a pretty intense conversation between uh, the group within the Democratic Party that had been dominant really since Bill Clinton came along, which I would call uh, moderates, um, Barack Obama being an example of that, who mm-hmm. largely believed in the, the system of governance that exists in the United States, the free market economy, uh, and, uh, and a number of the other institutions, and a group on the left that is more of an insurgent that comes, insurgency that I think comes in two different categories. One is uh, folks that believe in, in that came out of Occupy and believe in a pretty radical transformation of our economic system. And then others that sort of came out of the, the movements of 2014 and Ferguson and believe that there needs to be much more urgent attention paid uh, to addressing uh, the historical legacy and presence of uh, racism and other unfairnesses on the basis of uh, arbitrary characteristics like gender uh, in the country. And I think that those two parties are in conflict with one another. Um, the Trump error, I think, masked it a little bit in that we've been unified around a common enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, the tension continues to pop up for time, from time to time, and the party is going to have to settle uh, as to where it sits and what its brand is for the public. Um, before it's going to be able to become a majority party again, a true majority party again, in my opinion. I agree with that. And then as we've talked about, you know, my background in media is that if you can't be consistent in your messaging, it causes problems. And I think that that's exactly a piece of the left and specific to the progressive ideology, the progressive party, if you will, that kind of gels around the 8% and then the moderates and the typical left-wing center people like you and me, there is a disagreement between where the party is going at the macro level, what do you see? Because this is you know, bandied about in a lot of political chats t- lately is who is going to run for the Democrats in 2024? Obviously, we don't know these things, but yeah. and the same thing with uh, the Republicans. Who do you see well, as someone who's yeah. spent a lot of time in this? Yeah, but before jumping to that, uh, I'd love to double click a little bit on what's going on in the party, because I think one of the things that's really important to understand about where politics are and my friend David Shore has been pretty instrumental in helping us all understand this, but the elected officials in the Democratic Party uh, and the bulk of the voters sit solidly in the moderate camp. I think uh, any there's a lot of issue-driven push-pulling out there that can create distorted 
and not politically scientific views of where public opinion is. But the reality is that um, the base of the Democratic Party is moderate. I mean, we had a 2020 election where yep. the bulk of the candidates were convinced by the consultants to run to the left, and we nominated the last standing moderate uh, to run our party. Um, the tension comes when the elected officials themselves, for the most part, and their um, and their voters are very misaligned with what the the media that represents the Democratic Party. Uh, to the public and what a lot of the staff think. Uh, as David points out, only about 4% of Americans live in a big city and went to a four-year college. They are the entirety of the staff of the Biden administration, um, the staff on the Hill, uh, and the staff of the Washington Post. And for anyone that was lucky enough to go to a, a, a go to college, um, you kind of know who those staffers are. They're not the bulk of the people on campus, for better or worse. Most of them go to law school, med school, McKinsey or an investment bank, particularly at elite schools, it's the ones that are, that are sort of true believers that are most animated by the cause of the left. And that's who tends to populate and staff our administrations. It tends to populate and staff our media institutions. And for that reason, a lot of the voices and even some of the policymaking is misaligned with where most of the voters in the country and even the party and even a lot of the, 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 the electeds. Um, I asked a friend of mine who works in the White House to tell me what percentage of Biden's staff actually voted from the primary? And she laughed and said, you'd be lucky if it was 10%. So you staffed an administration, wow. people who largely aren't aligned. And it's why some of the policy preferences end up out of sync with where the public is at. And do you think those same people that you're referencing are leaning more progressive? They're they wildly, they are wildly more progressive. But beyond that, they tend to focus on a series of issues that are not the traditional, that are not the issues that the traditional Democrat constituencies represent. It's very common to hear Democrats say, complain that working class people in say Ohio are voting against their interests. They're no longer voting for Democrats and they're voting against their interest. But then if you look at a lot of the signature issues that we as Democrats stand for, they're not really working class issues. Student debt forgiveness, for instance, you know, something like 30% of Americans have a four-year college degree, about 15% have student debt. Over half of that is held by people with graduate professional degrees, law school, med school, business school. Um, and we can debate the fairness of whether or not the government should should step in and, and relieve some of that burden, or whether we should look at other ways to, to finance college. If we have time, we can discuss that issue at some length. But the bigger question here is, why is that front and center for a party that claims to stand for working class people and poor people. Another issue that people talk a lot about is Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the truth about our healthcare system today is that the bottom quarter of Americans get their healthcare for free through a government program, which needs a lot of improvement, but doesn't cost them anything called Medicaid. 20% of the public gets it through seniors about, you know, some other government programs get you almost to 50%. And then the bulk of the rest get commercial insurance. And there's lots of flaws in that system. The copays are too high. There's balanced billings that expose people to too much cost. Um, the um, access can be a real challenge. But the issue that Medicare at all for all is designed to address, which is to close the gap between people who can't get health insurance, is really a narrow one because most people who are generally working class can get very low cost care through the Affordable Care Act, $50 to $100 a month. If they're not getting it through insurance, it's a small segment of people who make too much for the subsidies, the, let's say 110,000, but 
are burdened because they live in a place like Brooklyn or Silver Lake where things are really expensive. They're the same people that are very upset about their student debt, but they are definitely not, you know, a working class plumber in Ohio, a union guy in Pennsylvania. Um, it's not an issue that they care about. We could go through the rest of the list, climate change, et cetera. And these just aren't the issues that the people that we claim to be for care the most about. And for that reason, um, we should not be all that surprised that they've chosen not to vote for us anymore. Uh, and my fear for our party is that as the specter of Trump, an easy person to rally educated people against, recedes to the background, um, that we may find it harder to dominate the college-educated electorate as much as we have, uh, that we will continue to see working-class Hispanic voters go away from our party the way they have in every cycle uh, since 2014, and that we'll be left with um, a majority on the other side um, that's going to be hard to deal with. I live in Florida. I prefer not to see Ron DeSantis as the president. <laughs> well, yeah, now that we'll get to that because that's a big question too. What is what is it that they should? They being the collective media and let's just say elected officials. What should they be focused on that is genuinely important to the Democrats? I think first of all, I mean, I can speak for myself about what I care about. Um, so first and foremost, I care about the way in which our country treats poor people. So I'd like to see us talking about how we expand things like Section 8 housing vouchers and others to make housing more affordable for people who really need it. I'd like to see us increase the earned income tax credit and uh, expand it uh, to, to uh, so that it, it sunsets uh, at higher incomes than it does today. Uh, I'd like to see us um, uh, create a uh, law, which they've done in California, but across the country, which mandates that Medicaid rates uh, to, for payments for doctors are the same as they are uh, per procedure for Medicare and commercials so that more people on Medicaid can actually get access to good care. These are issues that would seem like a no-brainer. Secondly, I'd like to see the Democratic Party, you know, immigration is one of these interesting issues, which we seem to only care about when Republicans are doing something bad. Uh, I'm lucky enough to, my, my father lives on Martha's Vineyard all year round, and I live in Florida, so I was lucky enough to be exposed to both sides of the Ron DeSantis <laughs> yeah. Venezuelan immigrant stunt. And it's outrageous, obviously. It goes without saying, yeah. I hope that any moral person that, that you know, people who had the misfortune to have to flee Venezuela and the desperation to make that hard journey to cross the border should be treated. You know, we can debate whether they should be become citizens here, but they should certainly be treated with dignity and not a political pawn and, you know, Ron DeSantis grandstanding. But I was struck on Martha's Vineyard that there was a lot of congratulations as to how well those 49 Venezuelan immigrants were treated. Um, for 36 hours, they were housed in a church in Agartown uh, before they were given more permanent housing at Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod. And I got a text from somebody that said, in a world full of Floridas, you know, we should there should be more Martha's Vineyard. And honestly, it made me angrier than just about anything I've heard out of Republicans in my entire life. First of all, there are 3,000 Brazilian immigrants that live on Martha's Vineyard. They clean everyone's toilets. Uh, they do the dishes at everyone's restaurant. And I have never... Martha's Vineyard is the most political place I've ever lived where people talk about it at every dinner party. I've never once heard a conversation of concern for the 3,000 Brazilian immigrants and the 700 Jamaican immigrants that make their residence on that island. And secondly, I live here in Miami-Dade County. I was lucky enough to host Mayor Daniela Levine Cava at my house last week, and we were talking a lot about this recent migration of tech workers from New York and San Francisco. But when I introduced her, I pointed out that there have been two 
migrations uh, to Miami-Dade County in the last year, couple years. One has been a bunch of rich people from New York or San Francisco who like the, the weather and the COVID policy and the tax <laughs> policy better. And then there's been a huge wave of Cuban migrants. Like the last year was the year that the most people left Cuba in the history of that country. And 200,000 of them landed in Miami-Dade County. And we absorbed them. Um, my, uh, I have a couple employees that came over uh, a little over a year ago. They're, you know, you can get legal status quite quickly as a Cuban, fortunately. And I heard their stories and, you know, they spent 23 days in a cage on the border, just like the, you know, when Biden was the president, just like they did when Trump was the president. Um, but Miami-Dade County absorbed them. And it was hard not to be struck by the question of, is our political movement on the left, is it really about helping people? Because if it was, we'd be just as upset right now that people, uh, you know, like my friends, Basie and Kevin had to spend 23, 25 days respectively in a cage with one meal a day at the border as they were when Trump was doing it. Or is this really just about hating Republicans? Is it only wrong when DeSantis sends, sends people up there? And is the way in which Brazilians are treated on Martha's Vineyard not very well in the way uh, Cubans are treated when they come to Miami-Dade County actually very well? Um, is that what's important or is it important to stand against Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump as people? And I'm not going to vote for Trump and DeSantis, but I want to be a part of a movement that's actually about helping people and that has the discipline to care about it and calls ourselves out when, you know, if we can't do a better job on the border when we're in charge, then what are we doing this for? And if MSNBC and the Washington Post only cover it when there's a bad story to tell about Donald Trump, then what are they doing? Yeah, no, those are all really good, good examples of where the Democratic Party, I think, could lead. And you also mentioned the media. So let me ask you the same question with respect to there was a book that I reference quite often in political interviews called Bad News by Batya Anger Sargon. And she's the OK. So what I guess to again, my listeners have heard of this, but her her thesis specifically was to your mention around people on the Hill being highly educated, coming from the best schools, being mostly liberal, if not progressive. She mentions there's a very similar thing taking place within the August publishers, Washington Post, New York Times, and then other, you know, the Atlantic, New Yorker, all of those, is that the reporters themselves are very progressive, very into social justice, and are not just left, but they're progressive. So the stories that we're, you know, seeing from these big publishers um, are slanted, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so she referenced, you know, a, a 2014 memo from the New York Times that asked their reporters to create a social graph, a big following, and to to actually dictate a lot of their reporting to the 91% of their subscribers that are Democratic. And so it's one of those things where do you think that that issue coincides with the issue on the Hill with a lot of the young you know, congressional people that are working in the administration, is that collusion of folks uh, pushing everything further to the progressive ideology? Yeah, the, the short answer is yes, um, but it's a complicated subject. So the, the first thing that I think it's important to say before digging into discussing the media climate today in the U.S. is to recognize that together with our universities, the checks and balances, our political system, and a handful of other achievements to this country, that our newspaper and media system is one of the great civilizational achievements uh, in the history of the world. The fact that we built 
uh, through the 20th century, a set of institutions that were really there to hold um, our political figures accountable. They could publish the Pentagon Papers, they could publish, they could break the Watergate scandal yep. um, and so forth. And they certainly historically have gotten some things wrong. I think obviously the WMD situation leading up to the Gulf War was horrible. And it's one of many examples, but they got an amazing number of things right. And it's essential to us that we have a well-functioning media. Something happened, I think uh, Batia points this out, something about 10 years ago, and it accelerated under Trump, where, and Wesley Lowry, who had, did an amazing project at the Washington Post to actually profile police shootings all around the country and bring light to that, where the FBI fell short, um, uh, and did it in good faith with real data, and it's a powerful uh, database. Um, unfortunately, he's been out there arguing that people need to stop attempting to, to be objective and start, quote unquote, telling the truth. And so on a series of issues that are near and dear to the hearts of progressive activists, um, the newspaper reporting to anybody who spends any time even reading government statistics or reading other critical sources realize that this stuff is, is you know, at best biased and at worst bunk, whether it's issues like race, sometimes climate change, uh, during COVID, some of the coverage of everything from what the vaccines might do to the lab theory, um, it was hard not to have a sense that there was a political agenda behind it. And what I fear is not, is that increasingly people who don't start at the same ideological position as this highly progressive concentrated group of people that work in our newspapers and populate a lot of our media do, will tune it out. And I think that's happened. And I think it's a big piece of why you have the Trump phenomenon, why you have vaccine deniers, why you have climate deniers is because in the effort to manipulate readers to uh, ideological or normative judgment um, that the journalist has, um, they are, are putting their opinions front and center. And the problem is that with journalists, and this is true in academia, too, there's no such thing as an activist journalist or an activist scholar. If you choose to be a journalist, you're choosing not to be an activist because what a journalist has is a commitment to its readers not to never have biases and not get anything wrong, but to do their best not to. And when you're a right. scholar, you're making a commitment to do your best to get things right and tell the truth, not to be an activist. And I think across these institutions that we that are critical to to what makes our society the place that more people in the world want to live the richest and freest society in human history. And these are empirical facts, not my opinion. Um, I'm delighted to go through them. Um, a lot of what makes it work is this commitment to objectivity. And uh, it is uh, hard not to be concerned about uh, the erosion uh, in some of these institutions uh, of this commitment. I would agree. And I think that, and to your point, you know, the New York Times publishes 200 plus articles a day. So the idea is obviously they, I think they're a great organization, but I am biased as a left, left-leaning person. But what I do like about people pushing back, Batya being one of them, is that there needs to be some level of awareness that a lot of our reporters are no longer from the trade. So if you, you know, back in the day, shoe leather reporting were tradesmen. They were people that came up to fight against the power and to call the power 
to the table. And I think that is where a lot of the reporting that I've seen specific to, you know, COVID and some of the major issues around social justice, racism, obviously is a really big thing, critical race theory, defund the police, all these really big, uh, you know, factors in our body politic today seem to lean in almost every corner of those publishers in the same way. And I think that that to me is, uh, was a bit of well, I don't want to say alarming because that's too strong of a word, but it's a concern. The planet may be headed to for collapse in the next 15 or 20 years, such that about 20% of British teenagers in a recent poll uh, came to believe that the climate will collapse before they'll be allowed, they'll be able to have children. So before wow. they'll be able to have children. And so the question is, is that really good journalism? Shouldn't the journalism be actually giving us an accurate picture of what's going to happen. You should never, as a lot of crazy right-wing media does, deny that it's happening. Right. It is happening. It is dangerous. But it also shouldn't be so sensationalized to the point that people come to the misimpression that human life may end by 2040, which is also not going to happen. It might happen. Is it going to be because of climate change? Could have an asteroid hit the Earth, who knows, or you know, nuclear, nuclear missiles or... That's in some ways an overrated danger as well. So it's just a long way of saying, and, and on the issues of, issues of race, uh, getting things wrong about race um, does have a big impact. And it has an impact on the people who need help the most. Um, the New York Times wrote actually a really constructive article uh, about um, the movement to cut police funding in New York in the summer of 2020. And there were a number of city councilors in places like the Upper West Side that had low crime rates and were largely... Uh, had largely white constituents that were for cutting it. And the pushback came from some higher crime areas in the Bronx. One of the Bronx city councils accused one of his colleagues of political gentrification uh, for attempting to impose the view about the police. But if you have the impression that um, as about uh, uh, something like 40% of Democrats do, that over a thousand unarmed black men are killed by the police every year, uh, the real number is between 10 and 20 yeah. Um, then you might see a crisis. Whereas if you instead realize that we have something like something like between eight and 10,000 black men between the ages of 15 and 35 killed in gun violence last year, then you might see two different problems with two different, both urgent, both important, but you might weight them a little bit differently than a lot of people do today. And so the question is, do we really want a media that attempts to convince us of a viewpoint or do we want a media that does its best to prevent, present the facts, uh, give us the best arguments on both sides and, uh, and go, go from there. And it's interesting in a lot of venues, I still think they do a pretty good job. You know, if it isn't an ideologically charged story, yep. you know, I'm psyched to read the, the post, the time I read the post, the times, the FT and the wall street journal every day. And if it isn't politically charged, the, the reporting is still really good. But if it is, uh, it, 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 they write things that I know are false at such a alarming uh, uh, pace that it's like hard to hard to recognize the publications anymore. Well, that's I agree with because that was what I found out with the defund the police. There's a really cool writer and he's a scholar at Cambridge. His name is Rob Henderson. You've probably heard of him, but he actually coined a phrase called luxury beliefs. Mm-hmm. And luxury beliefs are exactly what took place with the defund the police and the Upper East Side of New York. And every other area that had the, you know, the polarization of, uh, of wealth. And the idea there was that the, I, the defund the police, I think, came from a good place to put a charitable lens on it in that they wanted to, def, to 
maybe not defund, but to move other dollars towards mental health and other things that they wanted to do. I think that the the phrase itself was problematic. But then people that were saying, you know, we need to actually remove or abolish police was an actual faction of the Democratic Party. And where that does take place is through the lens of harm and fairness, they are violating their own policies in the sense that it is the people in the poorer communities in the black and brown communities that are at most risk for the defunding of these police and the people in their gated neighborhoods or in their high rise apartments in the East village, those are different. So like that, that to me was also problematic. And I spent, you know, a couple hundred hours reporting on the defund the police. And that's where you mentioned Schellenberger. I get a kick out of him for a lot of reasons. I subscribe to his, his Substack public. I've read his books. Uh, I live in San Francisco and he wrote a, very popular book. I think it was a bestseller called San Francisco. And he talks at length about a lot of these issues, you know, specific to racism, crime, you know, I think it's progressive uh, ideologies around uh, prosecution yeah. and, you know, what's going on here with our open drug markets and everything else. And and those things are not being reported correctly here, either by the San Francisco Chronicle or the progressive media outlets that I ch- I choose to trust. It's just not accurate. And, and and as someone who lives and breathes in San Francisco itself, the progressive ideologies of my party are not working in my city. That's yeah. clear. This is a reality we're heading for. And I think it's important to note, getting back to the division within the party, that the folks that are in the defund the police and abolish the police uh, and have similar views to that, the ones that are, uh, attempting to eliminate uh, any test requirements for any public school anywhere in America mm-hmm. and um, pushing similar policies. These folks do not have a compatible ideology with the rest of the Democratic Party. We talk about, we care a lot about the same issues. So the Democratic Party, in my view, exists to pragmatically and intelligently use the resources of the state as efficiently as possible to help poor people and to help uh, collectively like working class people and to help collectively the country to do better. The folks in this movement don't believe that. They believe that the enterprise of the United States, the free market economy, uh, and the historical enterprises the U.S. built on um, enlightenment ideas is not a good system, is morally wrong, and needs to be burned down. In fact, if you read the sorts of critiques that people aligned uh, with the U.S.'s ideological ally, the Soviet Union, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, what they were writing about the U.S., it bears an extreme close similarity to what folks in that movement are saying. Hmm. And so um, the ones that admit that I respect a lot. I have great friends that will acknowledge, hey, I think the system's wrong. Um, but there's a whole bunch of other folks that are sort of playing it both ways. They're attempting to accumulate power and resources within the Democratic Party, within universities, within DEI departments at uh, major companies. And I think we just need to be honest about it. And if people are on that side and believe we should burn the system to the ground, um, then they should you know, continue to work, hopefully peacefully and electorally towards that end. But the rest of us should acknowledge that that's what we're doing and stop pretending that we're all part of the same political movement because we're not. Uh, these are two different ideas. The the folks that you know think that there's a problem in the San Francisco schools and the Lowell School 
because there's too many Asian students doing well on the test and we need to change that. Just don't have anything in common with the rest of the Democratic Party. I remember even talking to Nancy Pelosi about it. And she's like, well, these people are crazy, but they're not representative of anything. And I, I totally have great respect for, for the former speaker. But I think that there's a little bit of naivete still in our party as to just how radical the ideas uh, of a lot of these folks are and how antithetical uh, to what, you know, Speaker Pelosi and former President Obama and all of us on the Democratic side, Ted Kennedy, what their ideas about the world uh, actually are. Yeah, we we actually did some reporting on the, the school board here in San Francisco and the recall and, and obviously the Chesa Boudin recall as well. But specific to the schools, they were let go for a lot of reasons, uh, the biggest of which is they just weren't doing their job. Uh, and they did actually three of the ones that were let go were let go because they were focused on changing the school names, Lincoln, Washington, because of Diane Feinstein, Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, these are not just a waste of energy, but they're also bad ideas. Correct. The general that fought the war uh, that that led to the the end of slavery in America is somebody that, uh, yeah, despite his imperfections, we can't celebrate that is an idea I, I mean people are welcome to have that view but um i don't agree and i don't think the bulk of america agree i certainly don't think that the bulk of the voters or elected officials in the democratic party agree with it and i don't think they're ever going to agree with it um but they're welcome to push it but what they shouldn't do is pretend that they're doing something other than that well and that's a good point that was backed up by evidence because we voted those people out and that, you know, as a liberal, we were like, no, man, that's that's a that's a bridge. That's a bridge too far. We don't need to go and talk about that. And that, you know, Lowell, for those who don't know, is a school here in San Francisco that has wonderful uh, academic rigor and a very successful track to the Ivies and some of the best colleges in the United States. And recently it was asked to remove its testing criteria and let people in on the lottery system, much like the rest of the SFUSD here uh, in the Bay Area. And it didn't go well. And it didn't go well for a lot of reasons, one of which is the students that were let in on lotteries were actually, sadly, um, chastised as lottery kids. And most of those kids couldn't actually handle the rigor of a school like Lowell because they just were not prepared. And that was a typical, I think, with the compassionate lens, again, on my own party, is that they're trying to help the disconnect, which they, I think, ascribe too much to race and not they don't describe enough to socioeconomics and culture and things like that that have to do with uh, specific to Chinese. Uh, and I have a little bit of that in my own life. I'm married to a Chinese woman. My children are half Chinese. And there is a genuine culture difference between Americans and Chinese that way. My, the, the crowd in which I surround myself with, my in-laws, my wife and her sisters all went to really good schools. They all got straight A's. Academics is a very important piece to their upbringing and how their families collectively uh, focus on education. And the fact that Lowell has a very high percentage of Asian students is based on that culture. It's not that Chinese people are inherently smarter than white people or black people or brown people. It's that they have a different um, focus on education. And that was then reversed as well. So Lowell is back to um, its yeah. typical, you know, and the same thing with Stuyvesant in, in New York. Yeah, the Boston, same thing. Boston has still uh, revised its test, even though several members of the school board had to re resign because of similarly racist tweets uh, that they made about a variety of people. And we still uh, have uh, Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. But the, the point you're making is right. This is not something 
that that people agree with. But I, I think there's a bigger point that people are missing about this, which is that if we start, if our response to the fact that some people are getting better test scores at 14 than others is to suggest that the test is unfair, then we're not doing what the Democratic Party and what the left used to be about. The right response to that is to say, how do we support people from zero to 14 in communities Mm -hmm. that are struggling? What's going on there? And not to say, to suggest that the, the, the students who, a majority of whom, it turns out San Francisco are Asian, are doing something wrong. And this is where we've gone a little bit off track. And if you spent about an hour yesterday talking to Roland Fryer, the Harvard economist, and Bates been a winner, and MacArthur Genius Grant has done incredible work on this subject matter. And if you look at what works, um, you know, merely pointing at schools, it's sort of similar to the police. Like we pointed our schools and we're like, oh my God, the schools just aren't doing the job. And let's make crazy movies about how it's all the teachers unions fault in this other nonsense where what we all know is that when you live in a community um, that uh, suffers from violence, uh, that suffers from a lack of role models, if you come from a household that's hungry, if you come from a household with one parent who has to work two jobs just to make ends meet, then the chances that when you show up at 14 to take a test, when you show up at 19 on a college campus, when you show up at 26 on the workforce, that you're going to be as well-prepared as somebody who was lucky enough to grow up the way I did with two very engaged parents who really were committed to my education. I imagine maybe you had the same background. I don't actually know. Um, and uh, so maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Lots of people overcome challenges. Lots of people are as lucky as I was, not actually that many. I was really lucky to have a great background. But the question needs to be, like, what's the policy that actually is going to help a broader number of people have access to the opportunities um, that, that some people have here. And secondly, the question is, what can we do for those people that when they turn 14 or 15 or 16, aren't really ready to go to the Lowell school? Um, and to make sure that we have a society that, you know, if you're for some reason of bad luck or other, uh, not, uh, as prepared to, to have a high octane, high paid career, how can we make sure our life's a little bit better? What can we do to make sure that people who, uh, are, are at the poor end of the spectrum, have a better life? What can we do to make it so that people work better? But the wrong instinct is to start to say the test is wrong. Um, that's the wrong instinct. And uh, if we're going to get back to doing uh, work that matters uh, to the people that we as the left are supposed to care about, um, then we're going to have to turn away from those bad ideas and get back to, the, to trying to find some good ones that really make a difference. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that the SFUSD schools, as an example, San Francisco Unified School District is and has been dealing with budget issues forever. And I think that's one of the frustrations for not only us as parents here in San Francisco. Our children go to a Mandarin immersion school called Star King here in San Francisco. And it's it's always underfunded. And so mm-hmm. we as parents fund most of it. We actually had to fund a fifth grade teacher a couple of years ago. And so one of those issues for us collectively, even as, you know, um, Democrats is that education is the piece. That's what needs to happen before 14, right? So it's, <laughs> that's a big thing. And our funding is being cut again. So yeah. it's, it's one of those things where that's for me, another thing that Democrats I think could do is help lobby on behalf of public schools. Yeah. And get more, yeah. Lo- more, more dollars into the underserved 
you know, sections of our, our cities. Yeah. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. So yes, we should fund our schools well. And I'll, I'll give a, a good example. So here in, in Miami, the funding is all done at the county level. And we actually have a really strong school system. And we have a lot of schools, like one school that I've gotten very involved with, uh, Palmetto High School here in uh, the southern part of Miami, where about half the kids qualify for federal school lunches. But it also has a couple of very rich parts of the city uh, that feed in there as well. And so it's a socioeconomically diverse school um, that has a wonderful honors program and uh, also does a great job. Uh, graduating people and sending them at least to, to Miami-Dade College, if not to a, to a four-year school. Um, and so seeing funding pooled uh, is, is really a positive, positive thing at the county level. But you see lots of examples where, you know, the Baltimore City Schools, for example, in Maryland, uh, have materially higher budgets than the wealthy suburbs uh, like uh, Silver Springs, et cetera, in Maryland, yet way worse outcomes. Um, we can cite lots and lots of examples of it. If you look through the educational literature, you don't see a great correlation between increased funding, increased teacher salaries, any of those kind of things. And this is work that actually Roland uh, Fryer has done a great job showing. What does make a really big difference is what's going on in the neighborhood and how much distress parents have. Mm. So I would argue that if we really wanted to see an improvement in educational outcomes, things like the, the one piece of policy that I wanted President Biden to fight the hardest for was the continuation of the child tax credit. And that's the one thing we caved on uh, the quickest to get a whole bunch of things that, you know, we have we have 600 billion uh, for student debt relief for upper middle class kids. But the, the the child tax credit needed to go away, let alone, by the way, funding to make sure that we can give more than a meal a day to people on the border. That, that's a story for another day. But the um, um, I think that we need to, to the the the. Yeah, the sad thing about a lot of policies that we've tried uh, is that they don't work as well as we'd like, and we need to keep working at it. And I think one of the things that disappoints me on the left is there's a lot of slogan hearing. It's almost as if there's this belief, like, if it weren't for these evil Republicans, like, our education system would be fixed, and the police would be perfect, and the border <laughs> would be great. And it just isn't true. Like, they don't, they are cynical, the Republicans. They don't have good ideas, and they often want to uh, pretend that problems don't exist or just say that the fact that our solutions don't work is enough to end the discussion. But that doesn't mean that that last point that they make, that a lot of our solutions don't work, isn't true. Like, we don't actually really know how to fix education. We need to keep working at it. But the most promising research suggests that actually improving the caliber of the socioeconomic environment um, that kids are going to school from makes a bigger difference than um, what happens in the school. And I'd ask you this, like, when you look at the school that your children go to, like, and you look at the, 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 the different outcomes, like how much of that is the caliber of the parents and the engagement of the parents that your children's peers have? How much of it is the quality of their peers, the exchange of ideas between them? And how much of it is just the school and the curriculum? I'm curious what you think. Hmm. I'm curious what you think. Well, anecdotally, it's a, let me just say, it's probably a little more pronounced in, at my children's school in the sense that the school was going to be closed based on testing scores years ago. And so they entered, they introduced an MI program. So a Mandarin immersion program for Chinese kids. And so my children's first language is Mandarin and they started that in preschool. And so they went to this That's school really much. Cool. <laughs> it is. It's cool to have them talk with their mommy in front of me. Cause I can't understand a word, yeah. but to that point, there's actually a faction problem at our school. 
So when we actually raised money for the fifth grade teacher a couple of years ago, the GE program, the general education program, which is mostly black and Hispanic kids, the parents were upset because they wanted us to hire with the $97,000 we raised, they wanted us to hire a social worker to come in and help the kids that were most at risk. And we said, that's understandable, but we need to hire a fifth grade teacher or we're going to lose the fourth graders that are going from fourth to fifth grade. Because every time you lose a student, you lose $5,000 a year in federal funding. And so we didn't want to lose, if we lost 10 students, we lost $50,000. So what we said is that these kids in fourth grade, the parents have already raised, rose their hands to say that if we do not get a fifth grade teacher dedicated, I will choose, I will pull my kids. So that was our first and foremost, that was the thing we wanted to actually accomplish first, which we did. And to your point, you know, my children, as an example, much like you, they grew up with my wife and I in a quiet home and they have, you know, tutors and they have sports and they have very active. My uncle, my brother, their uncle helps them with math and English. And so there's a, a big focus from us as parents on their education. And the other Chinese parents that um, either one or both Chinese are very also very focused on education. And so you can see this delta specific to the school systems that my children are part of. So your point is valid. And uh, actually, it's a little even more disconcerting for me then because it's it's not a budgetary issue only. It's a yeah. um, you know it's it's a much more complex uh, remedy, and I don't even know you know how to dive into that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of sad. So the, the the results, for example, on charter schools are quite mixed, as we know. I think again, not to keep citing Roland, but he's done some work on what actually does work. But there's been a number of studies, starting with one in Chicago, but replicated in a bunch of other cities that show that. Students that apply via a lottery for, for charter schools uh, do tend to have better outcomes when they go to charter schools, but not better than the kids who apply and don't get in. So the, mm. the, the parental choice of attempting to apply to a charter school uh, is more impactful in determining outcomes uh, than anything, it seems like, that happens at those schools. And so this is a longer way of saying this is you know, it's sort of getting back to the, a couple of themes we talked about, uh, the media, which wants to just make this a good versus evil. Yeah. Uh, that's what they're saying. And they're wrong because we don't really know exactly how to fix our schools. And then you've got the Republicans saying, well, see, throwing money at it doesn't do anything. Therefore, we need to go away and think about something else. And who's left to say, how do we actually continue to do work as a society uh, to fulfill the potential for what we'd like this place to be. And that seems to be missing. The second thing I'd say, the theme, we started off talking a little bit about the police and our expectations. There's this quote that I'm going to butcher from the former police <laughs> chief of Dallas, a really interesting guy. He's a, a black dude who um, lost his son actually in a police shooting. His son had had a mental health episode, was armed, and ended up getting shot. So he's, mm. his personal experience, I think, gives him quite a bit of moral agency to talk. And what he said is, we expect our police to be, um, this isn't exactly right, we expect them to yeah. be medical professionals, social workers, uh, you know, armed forces, and a number of other things, because we're not going ahead and solving the problems that we need to as a society. And then we get really mad when they fail. And it's the same thing yeah. for teachers, like this whole like waiting for Superman thing, this whole like the teachers union, it's all the teachers union fault. It's like, remember when Chris Christie was running around New Jersey yelling at teachers and thought this is going to make him like appealing as a presidential candidate instead of like looking like a jerk, uh, unbelievable <laughs> yelling at teachers. Teachers are the bad guys in our society. It's right. like a crazy idea. But what that frustration was is that like we're expecting teachers to solve a problem that 
is much bigger than anything that can happen in a classroom. And um, I think we should stop. And I think we should start thinking about like, what do we really digging in and saying, you know, what could we really do? Like, what can we learn from Jeffrey Canada uh, up in Harlem? And, you know, what could we do about Central City? I, I don't know the name of some of the tougher neighborhoods in San Francisco. Uh, but Tenderloin is, yeah. Tenderloin. Probably the Central biggest. City. New Orleans was right down the street from where I lived and just crazy amount of gun violence. I, I was a member of a church in New Orleans. I'm Jewish, but I went to church every Sunday in New Orleans uh, for community. And there were four parents that lost kids to gun violence. Uh, at my company, there were half a dozen employees who had family members, cousins, nephews, et cetera, that we lost to gun violence. Uh, New Orleans has over 300 murders a year for a city of 370,000 people. So, you know, as wow. you thin those statistics down and you say amongst people that are poor, young and black, that those numbers are staggering. It looks like some of the worst you could be anywhere in the world. And you say, like, how is somebody going to succeed in school in that environment where they're afraid of gun violence, where there's economic opportunities being advertised to them and illicit trade, where they're often single parent is working like crazy, where there's not enough food at the table. Like, you know, there isn't anything you could put the, and we did. New Orleans went with an all charter school network and there's this incredible after Katrina there's this incredible influx of talent. There are all these kids who've gone to go to law school and all these incredibly focused and committed people. And school's got a little better. We went from, I think, New Orleans, I say we I don't live there anymore, but we went from, I think, the bottom percentile to like the, the 15th or 20th percentile. So we did see some improvement, but it's not like all of a sudden putting, and there was a tremendous amount of private resources put in these charter schools. I mean, it wasn't a resource question. <laughs> it's just that the, the, the combination of problems are really hard and you need to dig in and like you can't fix the schools without dealing with poverty and you can't fix poverty without dealing with violence. And, you know, we need to be realistic about it, I think. And that's yeah. what I want. That's what I want the left to get back to. Have you read or heard of John McCorder's book, winning the, winning the race and losing the race? He wrote two books. Uh, uh, yeah. I've read both of them. And I think I've read all of his books actually. Well, I, I mentioned John McCorder's book in the sense, because he gave two examples of, billionaire entrepreneurs that opened up a school and spent hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. in Philadelphia and they failed miserably um, for the same reason. It had nothing to do with the teachers, the salaries, the institution itself was top drawer. Everything about it was wonderful and it broke down into violence and problems and kids leaving. And one of the entrepreneurs actually had some criteria that if you could graduate from high school, he would fund your entire college education as long as you didn't get you know, arrested or pregnant or any of the things that he put in as far as criteria. And the same thing felt true. It was the actual sad part about it was that it was the socioeconomics played much bigger role than any other aspect to it. And so to your point, you know, that's very difficult. But I think that, you know, to get back to the bigger theme on Democrats versus Republicans here, you mentioned a lot of things that the Democrats need to do or should do to get back to their base. What do you think they need to do moving let's just say the next two years you know you got mccarthy's congress um yeah it's going to be very different obviously he took you know he put and we have to talk about this guy just because i have to he put george santos on two committees one of which was the was the house science committee as well as the small business committee and what does that say i mean was george santos the logical conclusion to a donald trump as a president and then a Herschel Walker as a possible senatorial candidate. I mean, has the GOP lost all 
Uh, I mean, just all criteria as it relates to a candidate, as long as they are, you know, can pass the mirror test yeah. and breathe on it, they they elect them and they put them on committees. What does that look like to you? So uh, there, I think a little context is worthwhile. So first of all, Kevin McCarthy is a uniquely craven political figure in, uh, Good point. in life in that I think he's really willing to do anything uh, to be in power. Uh, I It's hard for me to uh, to do the calculus of, of a brain that works that way as to why George Santos on committees was a good idea, other than perhaps he wants to reinforce the notion that they're not going to press him to resign because they think they need the seat with their thin majority and the, the wing nuts on the other side of the party. So other than that, I, I don't know why he would have done it. That's probably the best explanation I could think okay. of. But the Republican Party, the same way that the Democratic Party is pre-Civil War, I think we we are going to have to reckon with the irreconcilability of the two wings of the Democratic Party. Um, the Republican Party is in the midst of that. And what Donald Trump did, the interesting thing about Donald Trump is that he was in some ways the, the worst possible messenger uh, for a pivot in that party that from a, a positioning perspective is actually much better for them politically. So the Mitt Romney country club Republican error just didn't have enough voters behind it, even mm-hmm. on their side, uh, to, to, to grow from where they were. They were headed for, um, you know, Democrats essentially continue to grow and grow and grow. And what Trump did is pivoted the party, uh, to a anti-establishment party. Um, and it was a very successful move. And you look at just the issue set, um, that they used to be involved with. I mean, the, the, you know, you hardly hear them talk about cutting taxes anymore on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, you know, they're no longer a free trade party. Um, and uh, so on and so forth. And so they're still digesting that and seeing where that ends up. I expect DeSantis will be their nominee. Uh, the, the only chance in my view that he isn't is if Trump gets out and he has to run against the field and somebody else catches fire against DeSantis as a favorite. But if it's a DeSantis versus Trump race with a bunch of dwarfs like uh, Mike Pence running around, like that's a very favorable race for DeSantis. I live here in Florida. I'm very active in the Florida Democratic Party. Amongst other uh, places, did some work alongside David Shore and those and uh, his team uh, in looking at what was going on messaging-wise. And DeSantis' group was incredible. Everything we tested for Republicans here in Florida, he was already using. The tested well, he was already using. And he's going to be a very effective guy to run against. And he really is very different than Trump. I think a lot of my Democratic friends, first of all, they're like, "How are you okay? Like, how is it to live in a state with like Ron? I'm like, man, it doesn't really come up that much in my daily life. And maybe I'm lucky in that respect. But like, you know, living in Florida is not a nightmare because Ron DeSantis thinks that, things that I disagree. <laughs> it's like a totally ridiculous thing for people to think. Um, but, uh, and I'm sure a lot of my like, work friends will be like, well, that's just because you're like a privileged guy. It's like, all right, go talk to like somebody that just got off the boat from Cuba or like a poor person in Florida and ask, a, and tell me what's like so much worse about their life here than it is in California. And I don't think you're going to find it. We have a lot less homeless people here. We do a way better job of taking care of our homeless population. There's no place, no county in the country that I'd rather be an immigrant from another country than Miami-Dade County, where over half of the people that live here uh, were born abroad. So like, I, mm-hmm. you know, that argument's ridiculous. But leave that aside. What DeSantis is, is very different than Trump. He's about three things. He's a typical Republican in that he believes that government should be small and help business. 
He's an atypical Republican in a good way. I'll give him a compliment, even though I don't particularly like him. Um, he thinks government should do what it does do well. And he runs a pretty efficient government. And the third thing he thinks is he really hates woke people. And he yeah. will do whatever he can to poke them in the eye, including violating the first and second principle and any other principle he has. And it's part of why he's catching fire. He's, you know, he's, he's sort of grafted onto the Chris Rufo critical race theory movement against schools and a bunch of that stuff. And it is energizing the Republican base because it gives them a way to talk about the anti-establishment temperament that they tap, that Trump tapped into while actually saying something that makes some sense. And that's really what their party's about. It is, it is dangerous in the sense that I don't want to see, I'm not particularly excited to see the Democratic Party use the machinery of government to win culture war points, but I really don't want the Republican Party in charge doing that at all. Um, so it's dangerous, but it is very politically effective. And I think that's where their party's going to land. And when it does, I think it's going to be a lot harder for the Marjorie Taylor Greens, uh, and George, George Santos's and Herschel Walker's of the world to land because it's no longer, uh, it's about tapping into maybe a more rational description of what this anti-establishment fervor is about, uh, which is a rejection of managerial capitalism and managerial governance is really what it's about. Um, and it manifests itself in this notion that our teachers are teaching our kids things that aren't what we want them to do because it's their agenda and no one elected them. That, that's like fundamentally why that issue is so animating. And it really is a big piece of why you know, why, why Trump and not Hillary? Hillary was the, the face of managerial government, the face of managerial capitalism, this shapeless people who no matter what the answer is, it works for me and not for you. That's how people felt. And DeSantis is a rational, effective messenger for that. I expect that if he's the nominee, that will unify their party and a lot of the nonsense will go away and these Democrats are going to have to run against it, you know, until we, until we beat it. Do you think that DeSantis has the gravitas nationally? Because obviously he's very, I mean, overwhelmingly popular in Florida and he's proven that. And I, I actually have done quite a bit of homework on him myself. And I agree with you in the sense that he's been a very impressive uh, leader in Florida on a lot of different areas and specifically COVID and data and how that actually played out within the business side of things. But do you think that the political stunt in, in, in Martha's Vineyard and the, you know, the attacks on Disney and the whole thing about wokeism, is that going to play well through the rest of the country? Or is that isolated? That, that success is isolated to Florida. I don't know. I think it's both his asset and his, his Achilles heel. And it'll be a question of whether he can contain himself. So I watch, I've watched him closely and I can't tell like the Disney thing worked out really well for him. Mm -hmm. it worked out well in part because getting back to the media, again, they cover a lot of things perfectly, but this, when it comes to an issue around gay rights, yeah. they are capable of writing something that has nothing to do with the facts. So the problem is if you live in Florida, there's things called the local news, there's local newspapers and there's local people. And so if you say a bill says something that it doesn't say, it actually ends up making people pretty angry. And so DeSantis won that issue big time in the state because what the bill really says is you just can't uh, talk about gender theory and sex ed in K through third grade, something Correct. that most same people, including me, agree with. Now, I don't think we needed a bill to do it. And the big problem with that bill is it lets parents school sue school boards for teaching things they don't like 
Right. That's crazy. Like we, that's chaos, right? We can't have that. But we, we fought the bill exactly the wrong way. We pretended it said something it didn't say. Right. And when Disney went out and did that, it, he whacked them back. Everyone's like, wait a second. Why is Disney getting special tax treatment here? And who they, why is some company from another state trying to tell us what we should do in Florida? And honestly, as a Democrat that disagreed with DeSantis on the issue and agreed with Disney, I was like, man, like that's kind of a good point. If you look at what happened to Disney's approval rating, Disney was a 65% national approval rating company that somehow ended up in the mid-30s after that nationally. So DeSantis won that issue. It's like, whoa, that's pretty smart. But then you get the vineyard stunt. Yeah. And it's like, man, like it's gonna be pretty fun to run against that if he's their guy in October of 24. And it's like, do we really want a guy? that's willing to be that mean to make a point. And you sort of wonder, like, is this dude, like, I don't know, the, you know, his background, he grew up working class kid, went to Yale to play baseball. And there was some kid from Shote or some boarding school who he just hates. And that dude, like DeSantis is just like, whatever it was, he just hates those people so much. And I don't know if he can control himself. So if we're, our best chance to beat is if he loses his cool and does something stupid like that. And it, people are exposed to his willingness to be cool, to make those points. I think that's his Achilles heel, but it's also a strength because like the reality is in the suburbs, this education issue, like the, the, you know, we can, we can, we can make myths about who the swing constituents is and what the difference between 16 and 20 was. But the truth is the difference between 16 and 20 is there was a number of formerly Republican or independent leading Republicans who shifted from the Republican party to the Democratic party because they had had it with Trump. Yep. And those folks, if they're thinking about what they were thinking about in Virginia in 2021, which is our progressive bureaucrats going too far, we're going to lose. And if they're thinking about is DeSantis going to be another Trump and start doing cruel stuff to people that don't deserve it because for some whatever stupid reason, then we're going to win. And that really is what it comes down to for me, man. All right. So let, let's circle back to my original question then and we can close this out. Obviously, DeSantis is the guy, I think. It's either Trump or DeSantis. Who do you think it is on the on the left? Who do we have so, on the so, bench? So just to finish that, like it looks like DeSantis now, you know, the yeah. if there's an alien invasion in June of 23, who knows what's going to happen? So, like, yeah. We're still super early days in the in this thing. Um, it's Biden's if he wants it. If Biden runs, yep. no one's going to run. Them. Um, you know, I think that we're, we're going to see probably more energy around this document thing, because I think there's a lot of folks in that media bubble that we were talking about that really, you know, want to see a true progressive in there and believe that we could win. We can't, by the way. If we, no. My, my sense is we don't have anybody on the bench. Uh, you know, uh, Gavin's an interesting candidate in the sense that, um, you know, he looks the party, acts the party. Telegenically, yes. <laughs> Telegenically, he's got some gravitas. But I think that there's yeah. some things in his California record. There are some things that he's done that if they were amplified nationally would be very, very challenging for him to run on. So Gavin's a, would be a guy if, if Joe can't run for health reasons or some other reason. Uh, Kamala, obviously everyone's aware that her numbers don't look good. She no. doesn't seem to have it. So in terms of who's on the bench, I mean, people talk about Buttigieg. Like, I don't see a bench right now. I don't um, either. And so I think our, our best chance to hold the White House, which is to me about a 50-50 shot at the moment, um, is for the economy to recover, which will help, and for, for Biden uh, to be there and for us to run on, you know, remember how crazy the world felt, you know, from 16 to 20, and remember how not crazy it's felt the last four years, you know, maybe it ain't perfect, but it's better than that. And I think that's a message that 
you know, ought to hold the suburbs for us, give us a decent shot. If the economy's bad or we need to go with a non-incumbent candidate and they get DeSantis, it's going to be real tough, I think. I would agree with you, sir. And, uh, you know, as we've kind of figured out together, we could talk politics all day. So I, I will let you go today, but I uh, look forward to uh, grabbing you back on the show one of these days. And uh, I, again, thank you for your time. I know you're super busy and yeah, I love thanks. hearing... Love hearing from really someone fun. in the know about what's going on with democratic politics. And I wish you nothing but continued success in all of your endeavors. And uh, I look forward to talking more politics with you off camera. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks, man. Great, great fun. And uh, let's uh, let's be in touch. Thanks for uh, thanks for, for including me. Really Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time. Big hugs.